Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, it's a pleasure to have in the beach shack, Glenn Gorick, better known as Goro to all his mates. Now he grew up in the Southern Shire and he has done so many amazing things throughout his life. He was a sergeant at New South Wales Police Force. He's been a business owner, pro sportsman, and also a director at Cronulla Sharks Rugby League Club, and also his passion of racing cars for his entire life. He's also done many, many charities that raise so much money and recently was inducted into the Triathlon Hall of Fame for all his efforts from racing and also administrating in the triathlon world. So let's sit back now and have a listen to my chat with Glenn. For this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure of Known him for a fair few years now, uh, Glenn Gorick, and he's got an amazing story. I think he's done just about every job and charity there is to do. So welcome, Goro, to uh, the Beach Shack. Thank you for having me on, Hopper. It's an absolute pleasure. Well, mate, let's start with uh, you grew up in Cronulla, and uh, what was that like as a, a young bloke? Well, mate, I, uh, I grew up in the Shire, as it's called. Contrary to what they, they think about the Shire, it was a wonderful life multicultural group with all my mates were Italian and Lebanese and Chinese at school and I had a Belgian French background so we were a real mix of all these people who their parents had come out in the uh, you know in the, in the 60s and settled into the Shire so from various overseas immigration as well as uh, as the locals you know, it was a, a funny lifestyle for us but wonderful wonderful to grow up in. Mate did you uh, play a lot of sports as a kid? Yes, uh, mate, we played uh, we played the standard uh, NRL juniors games. Um, I had a father who was uh, very well involved with the NRL. My father, Bob Gorick, he's passed away now, but Dad was a uh, was into every form of it: junior league, senior league. He was a director, you know, an administrator at Sharks for many years. So he had forty years of it, and was obviously acknowledged for that through OIM and uh, life memberships with the ARL. So Dad and Mum. Mum had a golfing and a netball, played for Australia actually, Mum. They had a, uh, a background in sport, so both my brother played uh, representative football and, and my brother actually made Sheffield Shield cricket and so we had this uh, incredible, every weekend there was something on and we get dragged off to it and play. So yeah, I played uh, junior junior league till I was into my 15s and uh, I actually did a Went and tried to get graded for Sharks when I was 23, but I'm glad I didn't make the grade, mate, because I went on to other sports that were a lot more, uh, less brutal on the body, I guess. <laughs> well, mate, let's talk about your running and, and triathlon. I mean, you became quite big in, in triathlon, but obviously you would have done a lot of running prior because, I mean, when did triathlon really kick off, sort of in the 80s? Yeah, triathlon actually kicked off early 80s in uh, in the Shire. They had the first tri-marathon there, which... Um, Mike Maroney and Clayton Stevenson and a few other fellas sort of kicked off the triathlon sporting uh, era for Australia and um, obviously there was Rick Parks and a few others and a lot of the lifeguards uh, down at Cronulla were involved in that, Mark, the late Mark Pringle and a few others, John Wilkin and those guys you, you probably know from your your employment and uh, they sort of get right into the triathlon to the point that Mark was our first true professional and Anyway, it kicked off, but prior to that, mate, I was into school sport, so cross-country was huge for me, and uh, athletics as well as playing football for school, and that progressed into uh, other sports later in life, but I, I had a big hiatus from it because I, uh, my science teacher at uh, Janelli Boys High was Beverly Brock, known then as uh, Beverly McIntosh, Mrs McIntosh the Science Master, 
and uh, she and I uh, had a, a wonderful professional relationship at school and uh, she brought Peter along, the late Peter Brock, along to our school and Peter was a real mentor about young young men like myself at 17 learning to drive and he was in motorsport and hence um, Bev Twistamama ended up getting into motorsport at uh, 17 years, 18 years of age and uh, it took me away from being athletic and put me into the high octane world and I, uh, I was fortunate enough Peter uh, met me at a lot of the driver's briefings and you mentored me at Oran Park and Amaru Park and a couple of other meetings and, and then at the end of the weekend I'd have a lot of fun with the Holden Dealer team and go to the parties and it was a wonderful life. I did that for four years whilst I was an apprentice and, and uh, becoming a tradesman at the same time. So great, great introduction to motorsport. Yeah, and I mean, that's where I met you as well. We are doing the uh, out at uh, Pheasant Wood Racetrack where we uh, I had my first try of a race car and uh, driving around the track, which was quite amazing. And uh, so, you know, the, the motorsport, you actually got into racing? Yeah, yeah. My motorsport, I, I ended up doing sports events for four years and, and worked three jobs to pay for it all. But... Um, Never got never got lucky enough to do a celebrity race. Got asked a couple of times later in life when I was doing triathlons, but I was never of uh, the ilk of the top drivers because it just didn't one didn't have the money, and you could never compare talent because those guys were just Peter Brock and Dickie Johnson and Johnny Bauer. Those guys were just so superior, Mark Scaife, but not as superior as you, Hopper. <laughs> not as superior. I've seen you drive, mate. Yeah, there's a bit of class going on there. What did you get a podium on your on your inaugural first race too? Yeah, I right? think I got a, a third place. I, I, I snagged there. So yeah, there's a a little bit of surprise I think for me actually that I could uh, I could handle that. But it's uh, it so much fun. The adrenaline rush is amazing. It is, it is, mate. It's a, and it's a good men's mental fitness thing to go and do something in motorsport or, or girls' mental fitness. Is, you know, it's, it's no gender in it. It's there's so many women now in motorsport, but they all say the same thing. The drivers say that when they're driving, that's all they think about, and they push out all those other worries and anxieties they have. So it, it, it is a wonderful contributor to to mental fitness. And that day, as you know, it's for Gus Wallen's Got You for Life, you know, and various other men's mental fitness charity so it's a great thing and and again I come back to you and and Climo and and the boys just having an absolute ball down there in that celebrity race and uh, watching you guys all learn and take it all on have not having done it and then adapt to it no doubt from your your sporting background in, in being a lifeguard and a sportsman you just transport those skills into the car racing and you do well at it and that's fantastic to watch. Well, you're definitely right. You're that focus because you're going so fast and, and trying to – you can't think of anything else. The only thing I was thinking about was Mark McGaw trying to going to tap me and knock me, spin me around a thousand times. But, mate, it was a, you know, a, a fantastic day. Well, yeah, mate, that – that tussle you had with with Sparkles McGore at the end there, he tried to get around you, but you just held him off. He had the faster car too, mind you. I, I know which cars are the faster. You you had a bit of a dog of a car. We did that on purpose, and you still overcome that challenge and got a podium. But McGore was out of control, mate. He was trying to push his way through like he was playing football. And But we all had fun. And uh, again, like I said, it was just, just fantastic to watch. And look, a bloke like Sparkles, he's a very humble very, very humble champion. Like he's, he's an elite athlete that's played and represented, you know, Australia on the international level. And even he came down there and said, "Well, how good is this? How good is car racing?" You know, a bit of fun. Mate, it's, it's a great sport. Now, <clears throat> going back to the triathlon, when did you decide I'm, I'm going to start doing triathlon? It was funny. I, I was mucking around with the car racing and a few other things going on, bits and pieces. I joined the police force and I ran into a bloke named Billy Harrigan and Billy was trying to use the, you know, the, the professional sporting opportunities to get healthy and, and I ran into Bill at the International Law Enforcement Games in 1987 and he said, you should come and do some of the stuff I do and, and uh, Billy and I have been friends ever since and and compared notes anyway, in about uh, 88, a mate, another mate, uh, John Salib, said, I've got this bike, you can borrow it, I want you to do a triathlon before we go over to Hawaii for a holiday. There was a triathlon on, in uh, San Susi in February 89, and with about a minute's training, I went down and did it, and and uh, what a nice introduction I had to that, because uh, it was a, those days the roads weren't closed or open, and uh, I had a, a nice meeting with a, probably an 80 
plus-year-old fellow in his car who decided to turn right across in front of me. I think I was in ninth or tenth spot, and I got cleaned up, went over the <laughs> over the roof of the car and landed on the boot and bounced down onto my feet and sort of took a couple of steps and tumbles and got up, and there's the old bloke out of the car with his fists up, right, I want to fight you, you've wrecked my car, you know. <laughs> and my Sunday's been ruined, you know, he was going off. Anyway, I dusted myself off and said, I'm really sorry, and picked my bike up. It was all bent, even though it was his fault. With the uh, more elderly statesmen in our society, you think, oh, they've probably been to war and a couple other things, so you, you don't want to get them angry. So I hopped on the bike and rode off, and he was abusing me while I rode off, and the <laughs> sandlebars were a bit bent, but I got, got to finish it. <laughs> that was it, and I finished the race and had a bit of a laugh with a few mates, and we went to Hawaii the next day and talked about it. <laughs> uh, that was uh, that was my introduction to triathlons, every 1989. I'd done some multi-sport events before that. I'd, I'd done a few aquathons, and um, the police games were always coming up every every two years, so I was doing all that sort of stuff. and. And obviously, um, Billy and I did the pentathlon in the International Law Enforcement Games a couple of times. So that was pretty cool. So that was how it started. And, mate, you did find some good talent uh, in triathlon and yeah, went on and uh, the Fossa Triathlon team in the 90s and uh, you were from amateur, I think, at one stage and you did do uh, a period there as a professional. Yeah, we tri- the sport of triathlon was growing rapidly, Hoppo. It- you know, the professional thing hadn't really kicked off. They had this thing called Elite when I started, and I thought, I want to be in that. And fortunately, I had some great mates, like I mentioned earlier, Mick Moroney, Greg Welsh, Rick Pallister, and the whole Southall family um, were all doing triathlons, and these guys were really good at it, and so I wanted to be like them and uh, and get to know them. And, and sure enough, um, we all became friends to the point that all our children are all their godparents and we all ended up being uh, on each other's wedding parties. That's how deeply entrenched we became in it and uh, triathlon at a professional level still hadn't kicked off in 90. We all still had jobs and then what happened was APTA was formed, Australian Professional Triathlon Association and you had to join that but you also had to prove that you were at an acceptable level, in the elite level in the sport. So Pretty much I was racing every weekend and top tanning all the time. I'd always get second, you know. I just couldn't jag a decent race and I'd, uh, I'd always get second. And if I went out to the country and tried to poach a, a first, someone else would turn up that I knew. It was like, a, like this big competition locally between the boys. So I was always really strong rivalry. But out of that came immense amount of success in results and, and prize money and so on. And obviously sponsors look at you and... Sure enough, Mark Pringle actually introduced me to uh, Carlton United's uh, board member, a fellow named Brian Romer, and uh, they signed us all up to really good contracts, and we, we ended up travelling. I had to leave the police force, and we ended up travelling all over the uh, Asia-Pacific doing races at uh, various exotic locations like Fiji, Tahiti, Numea was the big one. That was the French government ran that. So they had prize money then from 1st to 25th for the pro males. So it was a lot, a lot of money. So we chased that. And you can have a really bad day there and still come home with money. And uh, then there was Manawatu and Guam. There was a whole lot of them. And we'd do those in the winter months and then leave, leave Australia for a couple of weeks and fly around and get really well looked after and come home with a considerable amount of prize money as well. And then you got your FOSS's incentive money. So that was the sort of the start of being professionals. The sa- at the same time, the Australian Formula One series started under the guise of Tui's Blue Triathlon Series. You probably remember watching that on TV and the likes of Miles Stewart and Brad Bevan, Greg Welsh, you know, racing each other at the highest level. Unfortunately, I... Uh, I didn't get. I, I got. I actually got an invite to it, and I declined because I didn't want to lose the sponsorship I had. And because I, I always considered myself not at their level. I was only a national level athlete. These guys were world class. I was never going to get any money out of it, so to speak. So, and all I had to fall back on was my family business, which was an electrical business. If I didn't go back to the cops, so you know, I had to think about all those things. And the, the Carlton United deal with Fosters was phenomenal for an athlete of my level. And, you know, I, I really, really was very lucky and, and I owe the Pringles, you know, Mark Pringle and his wife a, a lot for that reference to get in there. Certainly was fantastic. And look, Reebok came along. I was with Reebok for 10 years. Um, so I never had to buy a pair of running shoes. Uh, Andy Lloyd, the Commonwealth Games 5000 medalist, um, actually set that up. Uh, he got into triathlon with his wife and 
they were looking for athletes through Vince Sherry and Renee at uh, Reebok. So I got a really good contract with them, and and that was, uh, you know, again that was just another whole level that I always was very privileged and grateful that I was able to have that sort of sponsorship level through my professional career. In 1997, basically uh, it was time to have a family. And I took a year off in 98 and had, had my first child, Eliza. So during that time, they changed the rules on professionals where you had to have finished a race, um, including Ironman, in 10% of the winner's time to qualify for your, your license renewal. And because I hadn't raced, I'd, uh, I, I couldn't have a result that I could give them, so they took my license off me. To my angst, and we had a bit of a blue over it with Triathlon Australia at the time, I raced in Ironman as the first time as an age grouper in 99 and still finished in the top uh, 10 Australian professionals. <laughs> it was something that you know, I just did and anyway, I just continued on in the age groups after that. So it was quite good. Won a few age group championships, Australian level ones and and I just enjoyed it, mate. You know, triathlon as a whole is a wonderful sport. It's a healthy lifestyle and I owe it a lot and uh, that's why I've kept doing it and became an administrator and helping along along the ways with uh, other athletes and so on. And I still do Ironmans, as you know. With the Ironman training, how tough was that when, back when you started doing it, it was probably pretty quite new. So no one really knew how to train for an event like that? No, we go into that blind. The only advice you get is off your friends that were doing them or had done one, maybe, or were reading books from America about Mark Allen, the great Mark Allen and Dave Scott, who were just phenomenal world-class athletes. I mean, Ironman and other events. So we were going into a blind now. I never had an interest in Ironman. I, I, I was only doing the short stuff. I was training, you know, the, the lower distances, but high quality. You know, Mick Moroney had us all doing these um, one-hour rides around National Park to try and break an hour. You know, uh, the high intensity. We were doing sandhills runs. We were doing a lot of short swimming sessions with Dick Kane. So everything was high intensity and short. And we, what we found that built an endurance base anyway. And Mick, Mick on a short course training base actually won the Sutherland Shire Half Marathon one year ahead of all the athletics club runners. You know, it, and we we sort of worked it out that you didn't really need to do a lot of long stuff. Anyway, I tried to get in Ironman in 1990 and I, I, I missed the cut cutoff. So I rang Kenny Bags and said, can you get me a start? I'm going all right in triathlons. And uh, Kenny rubs it into me still to this day, but he, he declined me. And then with a week to go, I had a race called the Botany Bay Invitational Pro Classic. It was only the top 20 male and female athletes in Australia were invited to this race. You couldn't just enter in it. This is when the start of the professional thing was really starting to come into play. So I got an invite to that, and I ended up, I think, fifth in it. And, you know, and, the, and the quality of the field were the guys like Greg Welsh, Troy Fiddler, uh, Miles Stewart, um, Clinton Barter, Jason Harper. These guys were all in the top 10 in Australia at the time, top juniors, and we all got an invite. Bruce Thomas was in it. And uh, Mark Pringle, oh, a lot of them. And anyway, I got a really good result of that. And sure enough, I got a call up to Ironman on the Monday <laughs> with no training and thought, oh, how am I going to get through this? But I, I did it. I went and did it. And uh, the advice was just to cruise along it by a couple of mates who hadn't done Ironmans. And uh, some days I think back and go, you know what, I shouldn't have listened. I should have had a crack because I ended up um, 9.40 on debut. In those days, that was a, a reasonably fast time. And... Uh, on the Monday, I had no soreness and I felt fantastic. And I thought, hang on, you don't need to do long miles to do these things. It's got to be quality. And I stuck to that through my all my Ironman professional time. And also, I still use it today. I don't believe you've got to go and... If you want to run a marathon, you don't go training marathons. You do, you know, quality running sessions of 12 or 15K at the most. Or you do a morning and afternoon running session. It's the same in triathlon. I cut all the mileage down and I actually in 94 had completely cut the mileage down and started sailing yachts super maxis with Andrew Short as an athlete program he had going to win Hobart and we were doing a lot of grinder work and winch work and I went up in 94 to the Ironman in what most would consider totally underdone in miles and I did 850 and uh, it, it then confirmed what we believed you know about short mileage and uh, I just continued on doing that every year up till 1997 and uh, had some great results as a, as a consequence of that short training and hard training. Well, that, uh, it makes sense, doesn't it? I think a lot of people these days, that's how they train. It's, they've realised now it's the quality, not the massive, massive miles that everyone used to do. 
exactly, Hoppo, what people do, what, what, where I see a lot of age groupers fail, they get involved in the sport and it's a wonderful sport and they get fit and they lose a, lose a, you know, a fair bit of weight and in doing so, by losing weight you go faster, right? So it's not so much you're getting fitter, you're just losing weight, so you're going faster for power to weight ratio and so they think, oh hang on, I'm going faster, I might do more training and they up the ante and eventually they just get run down and, and sick and the other thing that is really important that um, a lot of the early day coaches didn't take into consideration. When I was a professional athlete, I'd get up in the morning and go from a swim or my run or my ride, come home and have a sleep. And then I'd get back up and fully recovered and go to the next training session, whatever it might be. In the days of age grouping, you have a job. So when we were working in my family business, we were working, we we're up and down ladders all day long. So I had to factor all that into the training session. So if I'm working eight hours a day, then there's really no need to go for a bike ride because I'm up and down ladders all the time and I need to recover from this. And a lot of the age groupers were getting up, riding three or four hours in the morning and going to work and on their feet for 12 hours. So you can understand the damage they're doing to themselves because they're not recovered. It's like doing one of those long charity walks. You know, you get up the next day and you're just totally trashed. You've only walked. You're totally trashed, for, you know, and, and you have to work all that out. So you have to have this work-life balance in triathlon and try and work out that, you know, maybe 10 hours, 12 hours a week is more than enough whilst I'm holding down a full-time physically working job. I think that's really important and, and uh, you know, most people have learnt that now. I, I'm pretty sure for some of these age groupers now are absolutely flying and they're not doing big miles. Mate, how many Ironmans have you done? So up in Ironman Australia, I've done 28. I've done the Triple M Ironman, which um, there's no one still racing that, that had done that uh, that race in the in the males. There's a female Teresa Canova that's still doing that. Done two Hawaii's, one as a pilot for a blind athlete, Nathan Johnston. He's another whole story. We could do a whole podcast just on that, mate. And then uh, also have done Melbourne and also uh, been over to Bustleton where I raced in a corporate team. A mate, Stevie Southall had a corporate team entry in that and we wanted to win it so we had uh, I had a great athlete as Bruce Thomas as my rider and Stephen uh, as a swimmer is, is no slouch so we, we smashed the corporate record actually and won that outright so that's my Ironman career as it goes so yeah, it's been pretty extensive one a year or two a year here and there and uh, yeah it's been been wonderful. Mate I, I did want to touch on uh, Nathan Johnson just to see what that experience was like when you were the guide for him. Mate, there's no experience or no probably equivalent experience that would ever match being um, given the privilege of being a guide for a visually impaired athlete. Um, it's actually very humbling and, a, and an absolute honour to be given or chosen to do that. And, you know, Nathan, what you learn from that, um, it certainly gives you a, a reality check about how people overcome adversity and uh, make something of their lives when they've had all their cards dealt to them like that, you know. It's, uh, so, mate, it was, um, it's still, it's still quite uh, an emotional thing with me because Nathan is just such an a amazing athlete, you know, and to be given that privilege to take him through and be invited to take him through Ironmans as a project was just phenomenal. You know, I, I loved every minute of that and, you know, we've, we've got more to come. So uh, we, we keep planning things to do with him, but there's just nothing that compares to that. Uh, oh, there probably is having children, I guess, childbirth and getting married, but certainly doing something outside of the, that family environment, such as helping Nathan, is phenomenal. Could, could you imagine, you've done so many Ironmans, can, can you imagine doing it without having, yeah, being visually impaired? Absolutely not. And a few times I've shut my eyes and tried to run and tried to um, sort of uh, imitate what Nathan does. It's just impossible. I, I don't know how he does it, mate. I, he runs, for 5K, he runs 20 minutes. And we've done a heap of fun runs together. And he just puts the other trust in you. So one thing that I will say is my motorsport skills have transported across a bit where being a navigator in a rally car a couple of times. Navigation in motorsport requires you to be on full tilt, attending to every little fine detail. So being the pilot for navigator in a rally car, and that's the be so conscious of everything that's going on and call it off to him. So we'd be coming up a hill and I go, Nate, we've got a hill coming up and it's going to sweep to the left. There's a bit of rock stuff on the left. 
just watch that. And then we're going to jump out a gun or it's a pothole or whatever. I want some high knees here, you know, and he'll run high knees. So he just put his knees up and run a little bit high knees so his feet are coming up a couple more inches off the ground and he won't trip and fall. So that's that's what it takes, you know. And in the, in the stuff like a fun run, that's fine. But in an Ironman, it's a, it's a whole new world because he can't put his hand out and pick up a drink. He can't put his hand out and get the drink bottle on the bike. He can't see what the food is. You know, people visually impaired can't see what they're eating. So he's putting his trust in me to get all those items, put them on the bike and or in the run and store them and put them in my carry pack or whatever, and then I hand it to him and feed him. One of the real changes in Ironman has caused a bit of a dilution of the pool uh, or diminishing of the pool of athletes. These visually impaired matters in Ironman where they now make it the rule that the guidance go the whole way. So it is so important because if the guy fails, obviously the athlete, usually the impaired athlete, has to stop in the race. And that's, to me, that's unfair. In a short race, it doesn't matter because you just go bang and you're off on the gun. But when you've got to take on nutrition and all these other factors and Ironman, I really think you should have a separate guide for each of the legs for visually impaired people because there's no advantage. I mean, you, you can put the world champion with a visually impaired athlete. You can't make them go faster. The rules don't allow you to get in front of them anyway. So, you know, there's all these things that go on with it. There's all this stuff behind the scenes that goes on with the training and everything for Ironman for a visually impaired pilot. It's, it's, there's a hell of a lot that goes on. A lot of people don't know. It's not just a matter of turning up on the race and doing an Ironman with him. There's just preparation six months long just for the piloting. Uh, in there, you know, where there was so much time that I spent while we were running around with getting his bike fixed and making it work and, you know, delivering it to races because you can't put it on a plane. You know, there's all that. Plus, we're mates, so we do a lot of other stuff together now. We, you know, I took him flying in a plane, and he's driven race cars and learned, been, learned to drive. He did, uh, Channel 9 did a story on him learning to drive. So, you know, there's just so much in it. I've been blessed to have him as a mate, you know, and we, we have a lot of laughs when we go away, and there's a lot of banter and cheek that goes on, you know, it's good fun. So when you're doing the race, is it a tandem bike or in the swim leg? How, how does it actually work? Okay, so by uh, the rules, make us swim together. We have a tether off the ankles. Probably more so than not, it gets ripped off by other swimmers. doesn't really matter because I can't swim in front of him by the rule anyway. So we just swim beside him. I give him a little nudge. He swims very straight, surprisingly for not being able to see. He swims really straight. And uh, I just nudge him, steer him around the corners. We go around the boys. I might stop him and tell him we've got a left-hand boy. A lot of it's description. Um, before we start to, and then on on the bike, we come out of the water, obviously we've got to do the whole transition together, I've got to get him changed um, to make it quick and get the wetsuit off him and get his shoes on and so on, and then we hop on the tandem bike, now he's on the back, he, he's the power, he drives, I steer, I still pedal, but I'm not allowed to assist him, and the way it's set up, if I try and assist him um, by pedalling harder, it throws him out of sync, so I've just got to pedal at his cadence, and then I just steer. So when we get moving at the start, we um, we have one foot clipped in and we do a push off and we do about half a dozen pedals with the right side to get the momentum on the bike. Otherwise it'll fall over. And then we clip in and then away we go. And we are like for the remainder of the entire 180K. We don't get off it. And I pick up all the drinks and hand them to him and so on. And, and we, we laugh, mate. And the run, it, as we described, it becomes the navigator's job and we just have a little tether between our hands that I steer him with and he steers, pulls a bit of tension on it and pulls me back the other way and we go around corners and all sorts of stuff and it's just amazing mate, he's just totally adapted to it and look I'll put it in into a really good perspective for you, one year we, we did the Ironman, we rode up through a place called Bonnie Hills, it's got a pretty right hand brake on it and it's up about 100 feet above the water and you can hear the waves and it's a real pretty place so he asked me to describe it on the bike while we are riding together and I gave him a bit of a rundown on it and that was the last of the conversation till the next year we did the, the race again and we rode up there and he taps me on the back and says hey this is Bonnie Hills isn't it <laughs> you know and I said you're, you're shit me you can see you know and we laughed and he said no 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 I, hear, I, I can hear but I see with my ears and I, I laughed anyway um, four years later we were doing a charity run back from Narromine and we came up uh, Alfred's place called Alfred's Point uh, Bridge in uh, South Sydney and Nathan and the team had found a wallet on the side of the road and, and they were going to return it to the, the police station and I pulled up from my section of the run and what's going on fellas and Nathan oh we found a wallet we're going to take the cops and stir them up you know and did a fun anyway that, that was all done and dusted 
I took him for a plane flight at Bankstown Airport, and on the way past there, he didn't say anything, but on the way back, going in the same direction, four years later, he says to me, this is where we found the wallet, isn't it? Oh. You know, incredible. And I said, how do you know that shit stuff, you know? And he said, I can hear the side of the road and the bridge, and I knew where we were, and that's where we found the wallet. Wow. It just blows me away, mate. Hey, you, four years later, no conversation about it whatsoever, and he remembers. Yeah, that's, that's so incredible. Just overcoming this adversity and being an incredible person, you know, like Nathan is. He jumps out of planes and skydives, he surfs. He just lives like, he says, Nathan's catch cry, live life large. And, uh, you know, it blows me away. So if you're having a bad day, think about Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what time did you actually do with, with Nathan? So uh, the first one we did about 14 hours, the second one about 13 hours. I think the third one about the same, and then Hawaii about just on 15 hours in Hawaii. Hawaii was brutal on him. He was as fit as he could ever get, but we had ser- we, we were last out of the water because he's a slow swimmer, even though he's straight. He gets caught in the current a bit, and we got held up and dropped off out of the final group just outside the um, Kona Seaside Hotel, and uh, it took a while, it took 20 minutes to get moving, actually moving forward in that current. And so then we jumped on the bike. We were way behind, but we made our way through the field. We ended up, I think he beat 1,200 people in the end, and he did uh, just on 15 hours. So, you know, it was, it was uh, terribly hot. And also he got hammered by the um, sleet rain up around Harvey. We, it was like razor blades raining on us. And uh, it was pretty hard on him. But he ran the whole marathon, didn't complain, did everything right, just ran the whole marathon. And walked all the aid stations to get fuel. But he, he, he ran the whole thing. And I was, you know, just astonished at how well he did over there. With your Ironman race, what, what was your toughest race? You've done the Hawaiian one. Is, is, is that one of the toughest that you could possibly do? Hawaii's tough when it's hot. But they also can have really good days over there when there's cloud and a bit of tailwind to get you home. In an Ironman, if you get a tailwind pushing you home or you ride on a course that climbs in the bike and downhill all the way to the second half, you get predominantly get very fast times. And so Hawaii, you know, it works a bit like that, that the bike times are quite quick. And in saying that, then you're able to run a lot faster and a lot fresher. And if you have a headwind, um, as we always used to have up at, at Foster, we'd have a headwind for the last half. You'd come in pretty done and dusted to then commence a marathon time, and hence the marathons were all, for us as pros, were all around the, you know, just under two hours or around the three hours, ten. That was the key times then. And, I mean, that was running what you felt flat out. But also we didn't have bike technologies back then. The aid stations were a lot further apart. And the swim was just, just horrid, you know, it was in, in the backwaters and sometimes it would be quite rough. So I'd probably say, out of all the races that I've ever done, I think Foster itself was probably the toughest Ironman, if not the toughest race, because it had good hills in it, had rough, really rough roads that knock, knock and shake you about, which would hurt your back, and, you know, it made the bike wash its speed off. So you'd always ride a, like a 440 or 445. 450 time in it, where nowadays, you know, Port Macquarie, the roads, even though it's got its bad spots, it's a lot better. The roads in Melbourne were really fast. Hawaii's on hot mix. They were riding, you know, on new technology bikes that are nearly three or four kilos lighter than we rode on as well. So I'm not making any excuses. The athletes today are, are just another whole level, but we certainly had the toughness that we had to endure, which sort of has just a little bit been taken away with some of the things that have changed, I guess. Uh, technologies and more aid stations. Having more more to eat and more to drink is the key anyway. You know, you're, up, you're at it for eight hours to 16 hours, you're going to need three meals. You're going to need breakfast, lunch and dinner, let alone all the other stuff you're burning off to keep you going. So give you an idea of the consumption of food and all that in, in those things. And do you think the sport's growing? It's uh, a lot more people doing it these days? Oh, yeah, it's non-stop growing. Ironman, USM, Ironman, Asia-Pacific... Now with Jeff Mayer at the helm again, uh, it's just booming, mate. Every race is a sellout. The quality of the event, when Jeff's there, it just goes up. Even though I'm not saying it wasn't high quality by the previous race directors and so on. I mean, Kenny Baggs, you know, just just a wonderful race director and just put his heart and soul with Glenda into those races with his glitter team and uh, all volunteers. Jeff's just taken it to another level with the way they, you know, the modern era and, uh, and hence the amount of athletes lining up to do them. It sells out. You've got to get in. The early entry sells out. The early birds are gone already for next year's Ironman Australia. 
and they just go out. It's, you know, I'm lucky because I'm an Ironman legend. I get a free invite, and then I just pay the entry fee, and I'm in every year. And uh, you know, I'm just blessed by that. I'm so uh, you know, lucky that that occurs. But it is so much popular. Ironman America, Ironman around the world. These races are massive. You know, and they have. I was surprised when I went to Hawaii with Nathan. There was actually um, athletes that had fan bases that were actually at the race. So, you know, Jan Ferrodo had this team of girls and guys that all just didn't know him, but it was like a football club. And they followed him all around the world, watching him, you know, and, and cheering him on in races. And I'm not talking one or two. There was like 50 people in this one table at the presentation of all Jan Ferrodo fans. You know, so was, that was just phenomenal to see them travel all the way to Hawaii just to watch this guy race. And there was other groups. There was, you know, there was other guys in the race at that time too. You know, like uh, even Craig Alexander, he had a huge following. And Chris McCormack, those guys, you know, they the the world changed when those guys were doing Ironman. So they really brought this focus onto it. They were so fast, and you know, and so professional at it. Uh, they had they had these massive fan bases. And you look at Craig Crowey's um, Alexander's social media. It's just phenomenal. He's he's got. You know, hundreds of thousands of followers <laughs> for a triathlon for an infant sport to have that sort of exposure is just incredible mate you recently got inducted into the hall of fame for triathlon was that something that uh you were surprised with or, or absolutely amazed to achieve this it really caught me unawares when i got the phone call about it jeff mayer actually he rang me and said uh, mate look we're not we don't normally do this, but the law now makes us ask people to accept these things so we don't embarrass them by calling them out in crack. Or some people, you know, there's a lot of sportsmen that are very humble and they don't want accolades and so on. And, you know, and I, I respect that, especially some of the, you know, amazingly professional level athletes in the world in sport now, you know, the Tiger Woods and, the, you know, the late Shane Warne and so on. Those guys, um, very humble about what they do and, did. And uh, so Jeff, you know, he rang me and that was a, the reason he rang was, you know, he's, we've got to let you know whether you will accept or not. And I said, look, I need a couple of days to think about it because I never considered myself in that level of athlete that would be in that. And I told Jeff that and he said, oh, it's not just about your, your professional results. It's all about what you've contributed to the sport as a whole. And, you know, we don't have everyone that's in the Hall of Fame either is an athlete or an administrator and you're both. So you more than fit the criteria, and, and we're very happy to have you in it. So please think about it, and you know your, your contributions will be acknowledged, especially what you've done with Nathan, and you know uh, the, the blind athlete thing was such a, a great exposure for the sport of Ironman. Every time a, a visually impaired or a challenged athlete turns up to do a sport, the focus on that from the media is so much higher than just the, the best professional athlete in the world, because these guys are better than professional athletes. Well, these girls are better than professional athletes. Katie Kelly and those guys and girls that went on to win world championships in triathlon with visually impaired or physical disabilities, you know, the Brett Mahaffey's and all those guys, they're just phenomenal, mate. And they draw so much focus on it. And to be part of that, to assist the sport by being a pilot for Nathan, was probably part of the uh, Hall of Fame um, criteria, I guess. So I was totally blown away by it. I was so humbled, mate. And, you know, a couple of mates contacted me after it and, and all I could think of to say to myself, well, I'm just glad I'm in it with my mates now, you know, because I've got Greggy Well, She's one of my best mates ever, and, and Greg uh, is in there. Craig, Craig Alexander is such a close mate too. He and his wife are really good friends, and Craig's in there. And Craig actually got inducted at the same time as me, uh, which made it extra special. And when Jeff said, who do you want to induct you? I said, well, throw Crowley in because he's there, you know, and we don't have to ring anyone. And, and it was probably a dozen other mates I would have loved to do it. Like Mick Moroney, I probably would have loved to have done it for me. But Craig was there and he got the Guernsey and, and uh, we had a bit of fun with it. And, yeah, it was mate, listening to the stuff getting read out that I'd forgotten about. Just it was just so amazing to hear and, and take it all in and think, shit, did I do that, you know? And that was the, the side of it that really blew me away. I just wish my mum and dad would be back past away to share that. Mate, well, I was going through uh, all the stuff you've done when I was researching, and, mate, we could probably talk for about three or four days at the stuff you've done. It's unbelievable. And I'd like to congratulate you on what you've done with triathlon and getting that award. It's, it's well-deserved, mate, so congratulations. Yeah, look, thanks, Hoppo. Um, 
I really want to say thank you to you for allowing me to come on your podcast because I'm a listener, mate, not a contributor. And uh, I've had a few good laughs listening to a few of them along the way, Johnny Bell and Sparkles, they're all people I know, and, and listening to their stories. And you, you get the best out of people in your podcast where you get the stuff that others haven't been able to get out of it. Like there's some stuff Sparkles mentioned that I'd never heard of it, and I've known the bloke forever. And, uh, you know, there was other, other ones you've done, the surfers and a few others. It's just phenomenal podcast so thank you for allowing me to, to be here today to talk to you mate and thank you for uh, all you're doing for for all the sportsmen and people that have you know contributed to various things for charity over the years mate it's it's a pleasure and uh i want to touch on that now the charity stuff you've done you've done some amazing runs walks you've raised a heap of money for the, the different foundations like the mcgrath foundation and the mark hughes foundation so Tell us a bit about that. Is, is, is that a passion of yours? I've always been hooked into uh, helping others. That's just how I've been. That was how I was raised by my father and mother. You, you know, if someone needs a leg up, go and help them, you know, and be kind to everyone because some people are just having really bad days and it's not written on their forehead what's wrong. So be kind when you, you know, even if someone cuts you off in the traffic, just wave and, and just, you know, be kind. They've, done, they've made a mistake, but don't get on the horn and be angry. You've just got to be kind to each other. It's really really important in life because we don't know what's going on out there. So to get involved in charity just was a natural following thing and uh, I, I personally, and I really have never discussed this with anyone, but I was going through a pretty tough time with post-traumatic stress disorder back in 2007, for, you know, as a result of what I'd seen and can't unsee in the cops and, you know, we're in the police force, you're doing stuff that war vets do that you're doing it every week and, and it goes on and on and on and on and 30 years of it later you know it starts to knock you about so it was I thought uh, you know I've got to come up with some ideas and anyway we we did one little fundraiser down at Woolaware Golf Club for a young girl named Celeste Tate who was struggling with a heart condition and and all my friends from sport got involved in that Janelle Elford and Susie Maroney and Mick and all the, all the mates and we, we raised a lot of money uh, helping that charity through Wayne Mudge and then I'd, I'd met Glenn McGrath, uh, and going, I, I don't like dropping names, mate. Anyway, I, I met Glenn um, through a mutual friend of mine, Evan Ack, and, uh, and he, he needed some electrical work, and I think I'd run into him on a golf day, and he'd ask, so one of those celebrity golf days, we'd all used to get asked to plane, and, and uh, I, um, anyway, I said, I'll be your electrician's pigeon. From that day on, we've been mates ever since. I, you know, went to his house and did some electrical work, and ended up we just, we just, I don't know, we just got on and we, we, we bag each other out a bit and have a bit of fun, and, and a couple of other mates, Chris Southall, and uh, he became his plumber, and then we were looking after all the tradesmen for Jane, and then Jane got sick, then the foundation started, and I thought, oh, you know, and Jane, Jane and my uh, former wife Kylie really good friends and they used to you know we'd look after each other's kids and we'd go to functions together and it just became a you know a lot of fun as couples and watching our kids grow up and then Jane got sick and the foundation started and and then as you know she passed away and I I, a lot of us were pretty upset so we thought what can we do let's start doing pink lads we called them and a bunch of sporting mates decided we were we were going to run down the freeway and start raising money and one of those is Mal Butterfield has been a lifelong friend and a world board champion from South Cronulla Surf Club or Cronulla as he prefers to call it and then we had Trent Elkin he was an NRL uh, trainer and lots of people like Jeff Lay he's on the fireman's calendar all these guys who have made some mine have just achieved so many different things it all come together and we started running in the Pink Lads group and we took Nathan away with us for his first time he'd been away from his parents in 30 years as well and we went away for a week and gave them a rest and did some Pink Lad fundraising for the McGrath Foundation and mate, I, I, I've lost count of how much money that not only I myself but all those boys raised for the McGrath Foundation over about 10 years it was pretty phenomenal and uh, you know it just led to one thing led to another and people ringing up and and uh, it's funny Hoppo you I know you do a ton of charity work too and it's funny when people know you're doing charity work how much people end up getting your number and ringing you for advice on how to set, set it up you know or how to get involved and I think the influence on that side of things has been more satisfying than actually doing them. You know, you're getting other people motivated to help others. It's just very, very rewarding. And anyway, it was a mental health thing and it turned into this uh, charity fundraising. And look, you know, to get invited to that one recently with the NRL, uh, Mark Hughes round for the Beanies for Brain Cancer and get to walk with these amazing people who are surviving 
brain cancer and also sportsmen who are all helping and sportswomen and just these people that are amazing and for, there was 45 of us all together walking through these brutal bush tracks and uh, it, you know it just made it just nice to give and help and do what you can. One dollar raised can be that dollar that they just needed to get that breakthrough in the cancer research. Uh, that's the way I look at it. So, been, been wonderful mate to tell you the truth. Yeah, mate, we're uh, we've both been very lucky throughout our careers, and to give back, it's something that I like doing also, and I think that's something we strive, and, and it's a, probably a, a good thing to to be able to give back as well. It's so satisfying. It certainly is, mate. If you're lucky enough to do a sport that you love for a job, and you can give it back to it in some way or another, in administration or charity or whatever, it's just an honour, and. Uh, you know, it, look, sport, the other thing with sport, and people will know this, sport leads you to meet some amazing people and like-minded people like other sportsmen and sports girls and, you know, you just have an absolute ball with them and most of them are funny and like a bit of banter and you all get along and when later in the years, you know, everyone laughs about all the things. You look at all the walking wounded, as we call it, with no knees and bits and pieces out of them and there was a kickboxer on that last one named Richard Fogarty who's a world-class MMA fighter in America and now he runs all the MMA commentary down here in, in uh, Australia and in Victoria. Rich can hardly walk, isn't he? His knees have been killed, you know, but he got there and did his 50k every day and didn't complain and just a wonderful man, mate, you know, wonderful man that bloke and uh, he motivated so many people, so full of life, but giving back, you know, giving back. It's funny, I, I, I've been fortunate up from it, I, you know, and with Nathan, people took interest in that. And obviously we had Prime Ministers running City to Surf with him. So Nathan, through his own ability to achieve, has been fortunate enough to have people who believe that they wanted to help him in high positions, you know, just to be part of it. Not doing anything to increase their profiles, just wanted to, you know, run alongside this amazing guy and be honoured by doing that. And, and Nathan's going, oh, we've got the Prime Minister running with me. Ho, oh, oh, ho, this is pretty funny. I better give him some advice, you know. And he'd be in their ear all the time to them. And, you know, honestly, Glenn McGrath ran, ran with Nathan in a couple of the McGrath ones. And so everyone's sort of just helping each other and giving back. And it, it's just wonderful, mate, you know. It's just wonderful to see all that going on, especially for Nathan. Like, he's, he's just... Uh, most people with that adversity just can't do much without help and he's he's just gone way above beyond anything you'd ever ever think possible for someone that can't see incredible yeah mate it is incredible now i did see some shots of you when you were walking mate and uh you know we all love the banter yeah we love the banter. i grew up at the beaches so plenty of banter mate you, <laughs> what full bike kick you did the walking yeah right so lukey alexander who runs the the big three tracks it's called for the Mark Hughes Foundation, where he's the one that organises it all. And believe me, as organisers go, he's world-class, this bloke, and his wife, Ella, and his team, the volunteers. He rings up and says, mate, I want you to help with the McGrath Foundation one. Tracy Bevan's organised you to come down. And I said, oh, I'll, I'll come down to Newcastle and I'll, I'll fire a pink start gun for you. And it started the big three for the McGrath Foundation in January this year. And they walked to SCG and so on, right? So... Anyway, he says, mate, you've got to... Do, I, I walked 25k with him. I was pretty stuffed and I realised I had to run back to my car at Newcastle, so no water, no food, no nothing. Well, that's a bit stupid. But anyway, I, we all had a bit of a laugh about the idiot that did that and he rings me up and he says, mate, I want you to be part of the Big Three Mark Hughes Foundation. One, can you walk with us from the SCG up to Newcastle and I need your knowledge and I want you to help the people that haven't done these before and, and stuff. So I thought... I. I'll give him a ring and work something out. Anyway, I said, how about I, I do it in my trail bike kit? I've done it before where I ran, physically ran in the stuff in 2014 from Sydney to Canberra on behalf of the wall-to-wall -wall ride for memorial for the National Police Memorial for all the cops that had died and raised money for, for police legacy. And it was, I found new limitations doing that. <laughs> and uh, limitations that I never thought I, I had, but they were there and uh, that nearly busted me anyway. Then I did an Ironman in them. And it all come about because I used to ride trail bikes in, as part of the counter-terrorism measures at Sutherland for Lucas Heights. Um, we used to ride around the bush looking for the bad guys who were going to blow up the reactor. And uh, we also used to do search and rescue. And some of the people being these 2Ks into the bush, don't know how they get there, but 
the trial bike gear was great to walk in and you push through it all and you didn't get dirty or injured or you know because the stuff's so solid and I thought oh maybe I should try and do some sort of challenge in this stuff because it's it's another 10 kilos and just to add to it and get maybe a little bit more focus on the charities that we do it for so I rang Luke and I donned on the trail bike boots, they weigh five kilos each, and body armour and the helmet this time. I'd never worn the helmet in a charity walk, put the helmet on, it was nice and warm in the mornings, I'll tell you that. <laughs> and the gloves, and off I went with them. I decided to go early, a day early, to, just to bust myself a bit, and that was from Points Bet Stadium where the Sharks uh, NRL CEO came out and met me and I got the ground opened up and turned all the floodlights on and obviously a couple of mates, Johnny Mantney's son and Sparkles McGore and a few others turned up to walk with me from the Tri Club, the, the old president and a few people and we walked a lap of Shark Park and then I walked all the way into town in that trial bike gear and like we touched on earlier mate, <laughs> I thought, what, am I do- what am I doing this for? You know, you just, these things go through your head and then you, you know, you do doubt yourself and think, hang on, this is hurting down around the above my ankles into my shins here, this could be brutal in the next couple of days. And, but, and then I think of Nathan and I think of the people suffering brain cancer and you think, ah, oh, this is nothing in comparison to those fights. So soldier on, as we say. Mate, amazing, amazing effort. Now, you were on the Cronulla board and they won the comp. I think it's back in 2016. Do you think Cronulla can win the comp again? Yeah, Cronulla's had the potential to win the comp for 20 years and it just seems... You know, I don't know, Manly had, our, Manly had our, uh, our bit, the Roosters have had us, a few others have got a bit of a hoodoo on us, and they did win in 2016, and yes, I was on the board. I, I finished up on the board in March of that year, but I still hung around and watched, the, watched it all go on. It was a fantastic era of the Sharks club because, you know, my dad had been there for 30 years as the district president and the junior league president as well. He'd passed away, so it was great to take up that administrator's role and watch Sharks go on. And to answer your question, like I say, they've had the potential to win for years, but this year more so, they're just the way they're playing and watching the, the difference in Moylan and a few other key players that now have Nico Hines and Dale Fuchin, you know, to blend off, take all the pressure off them. A lot of people knocked Moylan a few years ago because um, he was making a lot of errors, but I sort of understood it because he had he was trying to win games for us. He was so passionate and fit and trying to just do everything for the team. Now he's allowed to have some freedom, and you know he's taking offloads off Nico Hines, and it's just made a massive difference in his game. He's still doing the same defensive stuff. I mean, if you watch watch the Sharks tonight, and you'll see Moylan, he's in every tackle. He never misses a tackle. You know, and he's not the biggest guy on the field that he never misses a tackle and you can't buy that kind of value to your side with a senior player where they're really good in defence because they save tries and they wear other sides down. People don't realise defence wears the other side down and they get tired and they get frustrated and they make mistakes and so on and that's a key, it's a key part of the actual game plan for any NRL side to, to really fatigue their side. You know, Hoppe, you've done some big events and paddles and you've done the lifeguard challenge. After about an hour in any sport, you're stuffed. There's nothing you can do about it. You've got to, you've got to go. And those guys are playing 80 minutes of footy at the one-hour mark. They, they're stuffed. They're bashed, and they're doing wrestling and they're running backwards and forwards. They're running nearly a half marathon. Some of them, you know, it's, and then they're backing up on Monday for training, and they do it for six months of the year, non-stop. They don't get any rest. You know, like a, you and I could go and do a long endurance event and have a break, have a rest. So. You know, when they have a bad game, it's usually the fatigue from the week before or the months before that have caused it. And, you know, you go, what happened there? They lost against the bummer team, but it's usually because they're, they're just worn out and they need to flatten and then recover and go again. And, and uh, you know, Sharks this year, they're just playing quality footy. And, you know, injuries will get us, and Origin always upsets the apple cart with all the top sides. So we'll see tonight. It'll be a true test against the Storm. I know Robbie Kearns listens to you. He's a great old Storm um, player and now he's one of the head trainers there and uh, and Robbie's a mate of mine I love him to death and uh, he'll be he'll be up here in the Shire at that game and um, and uh, then hanging around Cronulla for a couple of days no doubt but he's just, he's been one of the success keys with Bellamy to Storm's success and you know they'll they'll want to have an upset win at home at Shark Park because we haven't lost one there this year and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. Mate, it's going to be a, a good game, and you know I'm, I'm a mad Roosters uh, Roosters fan. So you snagged uh, old Craig Fitzgibbon as the coach. So I think Fitzy uh, is probably going to end up one of the best coaches around. So I reckon he'll take you to a premiership, but uh, if not this year, I reckon it won't be far away. 
Mate, Fitzy's Roosters, Sharks, Melbourne side that the Sharks now represent <laughs> has a good chance. And with Fitzy at the helm, it's, it's like anything. The coach is the key to the management and success of the players, and the players win the grand final. You know, that's just how it works. And having Fitzy there, he's so measured. He's probably the most measured coach that I've witnessed, you know, and, and I've seen a few, even when I was on the ball with Flano. And, you know, and Flano, Flano was one of those blokes that would, was just so passionate about footy that Flano would just be there 80 hours a week as Flano was just so hard working and you know people don't see that side of it they just see the coaches failings and then they have a go at him. Fitzy he's totally measured mate he doesn't say much but when he does it means something and, and what he does did at the Roosters is phenomenal as assistant coach and now he's he's just transported those skill sets right across to the Sharks. Sharks are probably now the most disciplined they've ever been in their 50-year history or 54-year history. You know, they're not out in the nightclubs anymore. Whether COVID stopped that or not, I don't know. But they don't have all the player indiscretions anymore, which was a big angst for us. We had administrator indiscretions. There were so many problems there, just one after another, and sponsors were setting fire to their contracts because of it. And, you know, and then the club has to bail them out. So Fitzy seems to have brought this mentoring into stopping all that. And some of those lead players that are just dedicated, like Moylan and Nico Hines and that, that just focus on each week, that's their job, and they've got to turn up and do it. It's just an, it's another whole culture there, mate. And it's the Roosters culture, as I call it, and it's fantastic. So, fingers crossed tonight, the Sharkies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Goro, mate, it's great having you in, having a chat. And uh, at the end of the interview, I do my segment, Five Fun Facts, where I just throw some questions at you and you can answer them however you want, mate, whatever you whatever you want to say. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> what are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? Oh, mate, buying a race car be the, the best and the worst because you have a lot of fun in it, but there's no money left in the bank account at the end of the day. <laughs> mate, cats or dogs and why? Both. You've probably seen my social media with a dog whispering going on it and I get the odd cat in there as well. I actually got Glenn McGrath's cat Garibaldi there a couple of times. Look, uh, all animals are beautiful, mate. Uh, you know, and they're not, you know, one of the things and to your listeners, animals are not, pet, especially petted animals that are owned by families are not here long enough and we they become part of your family and they have a way of communicating with you when they pass away they, they, they're missed as much as any family member and I've been through that experience so I've had cats that are better than dogs I've had one cat that actually thought it was a dog it was a Burmese used to scratch it and it's back leg would go in the air you'd call him he'd come you'd throw a ball he'd fetch and the only thing he couldn't do was bark uh, you know we tried to do that but then I've had dogs, I had a Labrador for 18 years and she used to understand w- words verbatim where you could say, go outside please, and she'd walk out the door and come inside, you could hold fingers up on your hand, she would count the number you had in a bark, um, you'd ask her a question, she'd bark once for a yes and two for a no, smart as, you know, so I've, I've experienced the whole spectrum of owning pets through my family and my upbringing as well as my, you know, my own family life and there's nothing more special than a cat or a dog that can return the love that you give them and they're just uh they're just beautiful mate you know i mean some of the cats you know you can't trust them sometimes because they can be patting them and then they turn the latch on the on the arm and you go what was that all about <laughs> but um the dogs i guess there's that old joke going around you you know you you throw <laughs> you throw the dog in the boot and it's happy to see you um <laughs> You know, when you open it, you throw a mate or a girlfriend or someone else in the boot and the clothes and come back, cut out way they're angry, right? <laughs> if you did it to a cat, you threw a cat in the boot and they'd come out screwing and hacking you know, you to bits. But the dog, he's happy to see you. Well, she's happy to see you. Uh, there you go, mate. I can't really decide cat or dog. <laughs> mate, uh, what are you most proud of? Oh, mate, um, I haven't been the greatest father. Divorce uh, makes a mess of it. Plus, having post-traumatic stress makes you... Uh, pretty hard to live with, even though there's not a lot um, showing, you're just quiet, I guess so. But I'm the most proud, I guess, of my two daughters, Eliza's, uh, you know, she went through that divorce side of things as a teenager and she rose above it all and she, you know, she got a job with in New Zealand and she's down the snow working. I keep my eye on them, I don't see much of them anymore, but, you know, you, you try and do your best to, with all the circumstances before you. And obviously the little one, you know, she, um, she's gone right through school now and, and turned into, you know, a beautiful kid. So you've got to be proud of that, you know, and, and the job that obviously my, my former wife and, and her uh, new husband have, have done with my children, you've got to be proud of that. Uh, you know, it's fantastic to raise those kids and they've turned out all right. And, uh, 
You know, so pride probably that more than anything, mate, is just watching them on the sidelines grow up and turn into to good kids. I guess you can't ask for any more than that. And they're healthy. They're healthy. Mate, uh, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Oh, mate, it's been a hell of a week. I haven't stopped. <laughs> Some of your posts on social media are pretty funny. <laughs> some of Reedy's stuff, Andy Reid, your, your colleague, I saw some of his stuff through the week, it was pretty funny. Chapo had him online and I watched a bit of it, which was, was cool. <laughs> Reading-wise, mate, I'm not doing a lot of it at the moment. I, um, I'm actually been in the middle of writing a book about that Red Cat Bandit uh, that I locked up back in the 90s. He did the most armed robberies in Australia, and, or if not in the world, and been tied up with researching a fair bit of that. So it, uh, that's probably been interesting, looking at what other crooks have been up to over the years to try and make a comparison to this bloke. Uh, uh, so there's an interesting one about uh, you know Darcy Dugan doing arm robberies and what they used to do and stuff, and not that I condone any of that, but it's an interesting life those guys led when they uh, the, you know terrorising Sydney. And, the, and obviously, um, for what they've done to victims, really you know saddens me. Because in any crime, there's always a victim that seems to get left behind. But uh, that was an interesting read about Darcy Dugan in the in the seventies. Mate, what uh, song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Oh, I'm a terrible singer. You wouldn't <laughs> want to hear me hear me sing, Hopper. I'm a shocker. I've tried. I actually, uh, <laughs> yeah, New York, New York. Uh, it's a big one because I got. We're all at the um, gala ball for the McGrath Foundation. It was a big twenties function, massive at the AJC at Randwick and I'm still say it was I still say it's a set up because three people got dragged up with the three tenors I don't know if you've ever heard of them yeah, three tenors and they're Aussie blokes and they do a uh, like a singing rendition and then they grab the crowd and they pick people out and you have to, they bring the mic over and throw it on and they say to you in your ear just follow what I sing and I sing New York, New York and I pulled it off somehow <laughs> <laughs> so I sing that a lot to me. You can't get it out of my head, you know, with uh, oh, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York. Yeah. Anyway, that's it. Mate, Goro, great answers. And, uh, mate, it's a pleasure having you in the beach shack. Always uh, good to have a chat. And I'm pretty sure we'll catch up soon and uh, we'll rip into some more charity work and uh, get down to Pheasantwood Racetrack and uh, have another race. That's it, mate. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm on my way down to uh, Wakefield Raceway at the moment as we speak, and uh, tomorrow is a charity hot laps day for uh, some people. That One guy's a paraplegic, uh, for an athlete, and the other one is a Iraqi war veteran, and we're going to give them a run around the GT Cup car for tomorrow for a bit of charity. They donated some money, so we threw the car and helicopter fight and a few other things. So we'll have to catch up soon because that stag bloke to that special track ambassador guy that you know that <laughs> almost beat you he wants to get you back <laughs> yeah anytime love the stag <laughs> <laughs> cheers mate I love you cheers thanks Hopper now let's go to Beach Banner This week in the Beach Shack, Dino's popped in. Hey, Dino. Hello, mate. How are you? Good, mate. Now, we always talk about and tell other lifeguards to be calm in, in rescue situations. And uh, there's one that comes to mind that, that, that you were involved with. And you're up in the tower and you suddenly look down and saw someone in the south uh, backpackers rip. Yeah, well, you were there as well. And I... When you're up there and you see someone in trouble and you're in the tower and you've got to go from the tower, you get a bit panicked. So, yeah, really, it's important to stay calm because you don't want to run someone over on the way down. Because if you hit someone in the truck on the way down, then then you're potentially going to hurt or kill two people. So, yes, yeah, sort of remaining calm, getting there safely, radioing all the relevant information so people know where you are and what's going on is so important in, in what we do as a job. And, you know, I remember you teaching me that as a young lifeguard and, you know, me trying to pass this on to, to fellow lifeguards. And, and this particular rescue, the girl actually went unconscious. We both went out for them. There was, a, there was multiple people in trouble and I raced out to this girl and, it was it was one of those perfect rescues that couldn't have gone any better. It's it's extremely difficult to pick up unconscious bodies, and I was able to scoop her up, like in one first go, swing round, 
jump on a wave. She was unconscious. I literally punched her in the back, just trying to get some sort of signs of life out of her. And the boys were ready on shore with the defib. And I think they did two or three pumps of CPR and she was virtually sort of coughing and spluttering. It was like one of those, and I know we're on TV, but one of those fake TV rescues. And it was, yeah, it's a really special one that sticks out in my memory. So it's probably the quick thinking, you know, of you going out there, not being as, you know, stressed and, and panicked because that's obviously when people make mistakes. And by being calm, you're you're able to pick her up, think about what you're doing when you're paddling out, pick her up in one scoop, come back in. And that potentially, those seconds that you would have saved potentially could have saved the person's life. Yeah, I, I yeah, don't know what to say. Like there, there's little miracles. There's a little bit of luck involved, but of course... I like to think there's some good management and there's some good practices involved and trying to sort of remain as fit and healthy as I do to, to put me in the best position to save to save lives is, is what I did as a lifeguard, you know. I really felt um, I really felt that honour as a part of the job to sort of, you know, to give, give my best. And, yeah, you know, health and fitness was always a big part of it for me and even driving the other lifeguards and, decreasing the time, the fitness test times and, and trying to improve the whole service was a big part of what I love to do with the job. And I think it was a good result. I think she did survive as far as I remember. Yeah, it was a, yeah, the, 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 the paramedics took her away. Yeah, she was, um, yeah, she was right to go. She, I don't even think she wanted to go to hospital, but yeah, when someone's sort of swallowed water, there's, there's that risk of secondary drowning and people are a little bit eager not to go to hospital, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> But um, yeah. it's better to be safe than sorry. It's just you. 